This is The Guardian. A warning before we start that this episode contains a conversation about suicide. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. We have a special conversation for you today. It's my conversation with Congressman Jamie Raskin. You might remember him because he was in effect the lead prosecutor in the impeachment trial of Donald Trump when he was accused of inciting the insurrection that happened on Capitol Hill on January the 6th last year. You'll remember the event, a mob of thousands of supporters of Donald Trump storming the Capitol in order to overturn the election that made Joe Biden president. It was a moment of high drama. The House of Representatives was in the middle of certifying the 2020 presidential election that Joe Biden had won. But then word spread that outside Congress, there were violent rioters, first outside the building and then banging down the doors, smashing the windows and breaking in. Well, on Thursday, Joe Biden led rather sombre commemorations of those events as many Democrats stepped forward to highlight the role the former president, Donald Trump, played in that insurrection attempt. For the first time in our history, the president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. But they failed. As for Donald Trump himself, he chose to keep a relatively low profile on the anniversary. He had scheduled an event where he would speak at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. He cancelled that in the end. And all of this coming as the Special House Select Committee investigating the events of January the 6th, a committee on which Jamie Raskin is in fact a leading member, is tightening the net, beginning to get closer to those people it believes were responsible for the events of January the 6th, including many supporters of Donald Trump. All of this is why I was so keen to talk to Jamie Raskin. He, in some ways, has stronger, more powerful and more emotional memories of what happened on January the 6th than almost any of his colleagues. Congressman Jamie Raskin, it's hard to imagine, indeed it's almost unthinkable to imagine a more difficult start to a year than the one you and your family experienced last year. And indeed, that is the title you give your memoir, Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth and the Trials of American Democracy. And in that book, you speak a lot about your son, Thomas, who took his own life on the last day of 2020. Tell me a bit about him and why he's so central in the story you tell in this book. Well, the, the whole book is a labor of love to Tommy and to his memory and his spirit. He was a remarkable boy and a remarkable young man. He was a poet, a playwright, a magician. He played piano. He was a second-year student at Harvard Law School when we lost him. He was an intellectual soulmate to me. 
And, uh, you know, my book does not even begin to scratch the surface of the perfect heart of this young man. I don't know. I've come to see him sort of as a messenger from a time 500 years from now when humanity has gotten beyond war and hunger and organized cruelty and uh, so many of the traumas of our days. I mean, one of the things that really struck me was, and I don't know whether you're able to say it from memory, but if not, I'll, I'll tell listeners what, what your son wrote in his suicide note, which I think conveys the sort of person you're describing. Are you able to say yourself the words or should I say them? Yeah, and no, I mean, he left us a, a farewell note that the police found on December 31st. And it just said, please forgive me. My illness won today. Look after each other the animals and the global poor for me all my love tommy i mean just the idea that he was thinking about the global poor at a moment like that that he had reached in his life when he didn't feel he could go on i think it does go to the sort of person you're describing he sounds truly extraordinary and you as i understand it had only just buried him on the 5th of january when you and i don't know how you did this you somehow were back at work the next day on the 6th of January to help take part in the process, really, the, I suppose, in some ways, the ceremony that was meant to formalise Joe Biden's election win. On some level, you must have felt that you had to be there. Madam Speaker, the Vice President and the United States Senate. Well, I did have to be there. It was a constitutional duty to be there. Um, the 12th Amendment um, sets up the first Wednesday of the year uh, as the day when Congress meets in joint session to receive the Electoral College votes sent in by the states. And a lot of people in my family were trying to convince me not to go, but I said simply it was a constitutional duty. We had uh, an extremely narrow margin already on the Democratic side in the House, and that margin was constantly threatened in any event by COVID-19. So I just said I had to go, but I said to Tabitha and anybody else who wanted to come, come with me. And Tabitha, Tabitha being your daughter. Yeah, our youngest daughter, Tabitha, decided to come, and um, Hank, who's married to our older daughter, Hannah, he decided to come. So they were, they were with me on January 6th. And it's interesting you mentioned constitutional duty because uh, you were, before you were a politician for 25 years, you were a constitutional law professor and scholar. So these are things you take very seriously. You're there with your family. Uh, as you say, you do, you're aware the margin was uh, very tight. And so you felt it was important. It wasn't just going to be ceremonial to confirm and uh, certify Joe Biden's election. But do tell us how that day then played out. As the House comes to order for this important historic meeting. Well, the other thing was that Speaker Pelosi had asked me to coordinate um, a response to the anticipated objections from the Republican side against the receipt of particular states' electoral college votes. So I was working with a handful of other colleagues preparing to make this response to all of that. 
And my colleague, Steny Hoyer, who's the majority leader in the House, had offered to let me use his office right off the House floor to get ready and also because he knew that I would have family members with me. So from there, I went to the House floor, Tabitha and uh, Hank would come to the gallery to watch some of my speeches. And they'd expressed some concern the night before, asking whether we would be safe. They knew Donald Trump had been urging his followers to come to Washington, but I said, hey, it's the Capitol, we'll be safe. So when I got out to the House floor, Vice President Pence had issued a memo essentially rejecting what Donald Trump had been urging him to do, which was to announce new extra constitutional powers to unilaterally reject electoral college votes. And he said, I don't have the power to do that. Uh, It's never been done in American history and I'm not going to do it. And so there was quite a hubbub over on the Republican side of the aisle. What purpose does the gentleman from Arizona rise? I rise for myself and 60 of my colleagues to object to the uh, counting of the electoral ballots from Arizona. And at that point, the Senate and the House had to divide. Up until that moment, we had been in joint session. And then things began to get very weird. The House will be in order. Okay. I got a text from uh, a friend of mine who's an actress named Alyssa Milano saying, are you okay? Are you all right? And I said, yeah, what do you mean? And she said, there's been a breach in the Capitol. And we didn't know that. And I looked around and then Speaker Pelosi was escorted off of the floor. Um, Hoyer was escorted off the floor. The Republican leaders were escorted. I heard this sound of boom, boom, boom. Uh, And I won't soon forget that uh, noise of a pounding of some large object against the door. The insurrectionists were trying to barrel their way in and members rushed over to try to reinforce the door. And then Capitol officers came in with their guns drawn and moved to protect the door. But it was absolute chaos and pandemonium. Nobody knew what was going on. There was real terror up in the gallery uh, where one of our colleagues, Susan Wilde from Pennsylvania, was having a panic attack and other members were trying to help her. The members up there on the Democratic side were trying to move over to the Republican side and later explained to me that was because they thought that if there were a shooter with an AR-15, they would be less likely to shoot over at the Republican side of the aisle than the Democratic side of the aisle. And um, meantime, we were uh, told to put our gas masks on. Somebody sent me a a photo of of an insurrectionist who was in the building uh, brandishing a Confederate battle flag in Statuary Hall. And I was so shaken by this image, I crossed the aisle and I showed it to Liz Cheney, who is my Republican colleague from Wyoming. And I said, Liz, it looks like we're under new management. And she shook her head and said, oh my God, what have they done? And then we were told to get out of the chamber and we were going to uh, exit. And we went through the speaker's lobby off to the right and we finally escaped to safety. But of course, foremost in my mind was my daughter Tabitha and Hank, who were back in Stenning Hoyer's office. And they were with my chief of staff. They had locked the door, barricaded themselves in, with the furniture and they were hiding under a desk and it would be over an hour later when we finally were able to get the officers to them to get them out so that was a, a harrowing period of time 
I mean, General Nightmare doesn't even begin to capture it. And you, you famously described some of these events when it came to the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And you mentioned, said something there which stayed with people, which was a remark your daughter said to you when the day was over. I was eager to get the kids out and finally arranged for a way for them to leave. And I was saying goodbye to Tabitha and I gave her a hug and kiss and I apologized and I told her I was so sorry and it would never be like this again, I promised, when the next time she came back to the Capitol. And she said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. And for some reason, of everything that I had seen that day, all of the blood and the gore and the viciousness and the T-shirts that said um, Camp Auschwitz, staff on them, and officers getting speared with Confederate battle flags and Trump flags, even with all of that stuff, this was the thing that for some reason just knocked me over because I felt like it was a repudiation of how I had decided to spend my life in politics. She was basically saying, this isn't safe and I don't want to have anything more to do with it. I mean, it's so harrowing because a week earlier you had lost your son and then here was your daughter saying that, as you say, the thing that had been the focus of your life, not just actually as a politician, but earlier even as a dedicated scholar of the Constitution, that she wanted, as you say, nothing to do with it. I mean, you then take that all that emotion and it fuels you into leading that second impeachment trial against Donald Trump, you know, which ends in his acquittal because Republicans vote more or less on party lines. And then now to your place on this House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attacks. I'm just wondering to what extent you think, and it's partly because your book does mix these two traumas, your personal one and the one that America itself went through. To what extent did it in some way give you a focus in that year? A lot of people who have been bereaved say that it's very hard to find a focus, and yet you suddenly had one throughout 2021. And I wonder what you feel the relationship is in how you grieved for your son, Tommy, and then this kind of mission you have had and are still involved in to hold people to account for what happened on January the 6th? Well, I felt Tommy was with me the whole way. I felt him in my chest. I felt him in my heart. When Speaker Pelosi asked me to be the lead impeachment manager, I was a wreck. I mean, I had not been sleeping. I had not been eating. I was drowning in grief and sorrow. And I record in the book that I feel like she threw me a lifeline because she was saying, we need you. She was effectively urging me to rally a team that would come, I think, to offer the most overwhelming and devastating evidence of presidential guilt in an impeachment trial in American history. He further incited them while failing to defend us. If that's not ground for conviction, if that's not a high crime and misdemeanor against the Republic in the United States of America, then nothing is. And indeed, we ended up with the most sweeping bipartisan vote to convict in the Senate uh, in American history, 57 to 43. He still beat the constitutional spread I do believe that we convicted him in the court of public opinion. And in the eyes of history, he will go down um, as the worst president we ever had and one who attempted to levy a violent insurrection and a coup against his own government. 
Of course, Donald Trump and his loyalists in the Senate said he was not guilty of inciting this insurrection. Nevertheless, was there a part of you that did think at some point, you know what, we're going to actually make the case and persuade our Republican colleagues so that this body speaks as one and rejects Trumpism and votes to convict him? Did any part of you ever think you might actually get that? No, that was precisely what I thought right up till the moment of the roll call and even through the roll call, because some of the Republican senators who defected from the Trump dogma were very early in the alphabet, uh, like Senator Burr from North Carolina and Senator Cassidy from Louisiana. So it looked like things were headed precisely in that direction. And I always believed it. And I thought that the evidence was so irrefutable that the Republican members would actually use this as an opportunity to get rid of a guy that even his strongest supporters had castigated in very severe ways. I mean, they were just afraid of him. And I thought maybe they would all hold hands and jump together. So why didn't they in the end? I think that Mitch McConnell, if he knew that a majority of the Republicans were on our side, then he would have known that he could survive Donald Trump's inevitable effort to exact retaliation by getting somebody to run against him as Republican leader. So if he had been able to get 26, then it would have happened. And apparently they didn't get 26. But McConnell, at the very end of it, made a speech that sounded like the speeches we were giving. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. I mean, he said that Donald Trump was singularly, ethically, morally, practically responsible for everything that happened and on and on. And then he ended up with this postscript paragraph where he just said, we have no power to convict and disqualify a former office holder who is now a private citizen. But the Senate doesn't have the power to try a president who's already left office, which is patently absurd, uh, refuted by the text of the Constitution, the structure of the Constitution, the history of the Senate. And it was also a point made on the first day of trial, which the Senate voted to reject. So that was a rather pathetic performance on his part. Ultimately, the problem was that Donald Trump still exercised too much power in the Republican Party. And what I told the Republicans became true. If they didn't deal with Donald Trump at this moment when his crimes were being advertised before the entire world, if they didn't do it now, then he would only tighten his stranglehold over the Republican Party. And that, of course, has come to pass. And those who have continued to stand against him in the Republican Party, like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and Mitt Romney, have become pariahs and they are an endangered species as Trump puts up uh, all of the power and money against them in primary races. Doesn't that make you think, therefore, that all whatever hopes you had in the Senate process, you must surely have much uh, lower hopes and lower expectations for what can come of the committee that you're now serving on, the, the special committee, select committee investigating the January the 6th attempted insurrection. Surely, beyond issuing a report that lots of people who already agree with you will agree with, it's not going to go anywhere, is it? Well, the committee that I serve on now, the select committee on the January 6th attack on Congress, uh, is the most bipartisan committee I've ever been on. The Republicans decided to boycott it, despite the fact they had originally called for just a committee. Given all that, they're boycotting it. We have Liz Cheney. 
I think the country needs a strong Republican Party going forward. But our party has to choose. We can either uh, be loyal to Donald Trump or we can be loyal to the Constitution. But we cannot be both. And, uh, and Adam Kinzinger, two honorable Republican members who are constitutional patriots, as well as a very fine chairman, Benny Thompson, and a great uh, roster of members. And we are making remarkable progress in actually gathering all the evidence of what happened. But the whole point was to try to get Pence to reject electoral college votes from the states. And if they could just get him to repudiate electors from Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, it would have lowered Joe Biden's total in the electoral college below 270. And he was prepared at that moment, I believe, to invoke the Insurrection Act and to declare something like martial law in our country, calling in the National Guard to put down the violence and chaos that he had unleashed against us. Do you think, incidentally, that Mike Pence doesn't get enough credit um, for the stance he took. I know, of course, he only was doing what the Constitution demands, but given everyone else was trampling over the Constitution on the Republican side then, should he and should should he get more credit than he gets at the moment? Well, I give him that credit in my book. I say he was a constitutional patriot. I say he was a hero just for doing his job because so many people, led, of course, by the President of the United States, did not do their job. I mean, President Trump sat on his hands for more than three hours while the capital of the United States was under violent siege and people were beseeching him to interfere. And he did nothing other than apparently revel and delight in the chaos that he had sent against us. And you, you, the committee has been unearthing some amazing stuff, including, you know, Fox News hosts like Sean Hannity sending messages to Trump saying, please calm this down. They then went on air and said, you know, nothing, nothing to see here. But what is what, what piece of evidence are you still waiting for, as it were, from this investigation? And do you feel you're close to getting it? Oh, I think we're extremely close to being able to tell a comprehensive and fine grained story to Congress, to the American people, to the world about what happened. You know, we are reconstructing the money trail. We are reconstructing what exactly happened on Facebook and Twitter within the social media. You know, but I'm looking for more specific linkages among these different levels of activity, how Trump's inner political entourage interacted with these white nationalist violent extremist groups. But the basic picture is there. We are going to have hearings early in the year, daily hearings to tell this story to the American people. And we're going to issue a report that includes recommendations about how to make sure that such a thing never happens again. But we are determined to see that there will be accountability for the people who try to perpetrate um, the coup against America. And I suppose the worry is that you could tell this absolutely fine-grained, detailed, copper bottom story and yet still there will be a group of people a body of voters in the country who will not believe it and will still insist that the election was stolen and they'll believe that trump should be uh, still president what do you think given all of that that sort of mountain you have to climb what do you think is the long-term effect the legacy perhaps of the january the 6th insurrection well, I think um, we've lost um, some self-delusion about American exceptionalism, that somehow we're a country that uh, can't fall prey to totalitarian lies, like the big lie about the election, that somehow we are invulnerable to mob violence. None of that is true. I mean, 
if there's anything exceptional about our country, what's exceptional is that we have tried to become the world's greatest multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious constitutional democracy through the struggle to defend democracy and to deepen and enrich it. But uh, we are not immune to history. And a lot of the skeletons and demons of the 20th century have come back to haunt us. And what about for you yourself, Jamie Raskin? You People say that you are now the best known member of the Maryland state delegation and that if there was statewide office for the Senate or for the governor's mansion of Maryland, you would be a front runner for that. Uh, you were a student of and a professor of constitutional law for more than two decades before you were a player in, in politics. What do you want to do next? The truth is that I have no idea. Um, I want to get us through our select committee process. I want this story to be told to Americans present and future. Uh, in terms of my own political career, I just can't see that far. I've never been one of those politicians who has some kind of big game plan. I, I really don't. And um, I will do whatever I can to be service to my family and my community and my country. And um, that might involve further public office and it may not. I just don't know. I'm yet to meet one of those politicians who has one of those game plans and admits it. That's the <laughs> thing. I, that's the thing I've never yet come across. The book is unthinkable: trauma, truth, and the trials of American democracy. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast this week. Well, I appreciate you having me. I really do. And that is all from me for this week. Now that we are well into 2022, we'd very much like to hear from you. It's a big year in US politics. We're planning on covering it all. So please do send in your questions and comments to podcasts at theguardian.com or find me on Twitter. My handle there is at Friedland. Remember, there's a double E in there. If you want to hear more about the January 6th riots and what they meant for American democracy, my colleague and loyal friend of the pod, David Smith, spoke to Nosheen Iqbal for Thursday's edition of Today in Focus. So do listen back to that wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. I hope your year has got off to a good start. And thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. 